0: to man-centered, and now we're living out the fruit of that in our universities, in our government, in our organizations, and in our own hearts, that like deists of days gone by, we believe there's a God, but we don't act like he is actually involved in our lives day to day. He's kind of out there, and every once in a while he might, you know, do something to make his presence known or to shift the direction of things but you know on the day to day we just basically live our lives and and what we decide and what we think is best and and we live them out without god really being involved well that is a man centered view of life it is not shared at all by the scriptures but it is what you and I live in day to day. And you know, when a fish swims in dirty water, it gets dirty. And when we live in a culture that says there is no God, or at best, he's out there, but he doesn't really impact my life day to day, we begin to act that way without realizing. But there's these verses and stories all through scripture that contradict that philosophy. That way of thinking about life. And one of them is 1 Peter 5, verse 7. And Peter says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Peter says this quote from the Old Testament to support the idea that we need to walk humbly before God and others because God is actively at work in our lives and when we are proud, he opposes us. But when we are humble and and walk in humble obedience, he actually pours grace into our lives to produce more of that fruit in our lives. We're in a series on David. A man after God's own heart, and there is a story that kind of illustrates that, and I want to go to that story, 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want us to see in actual living how God is more involved in your life and mine than we really think. So, in order to understand First Samuel 18, you have to kind of, Pick up 1 Samuel 17 in the end. Verse 57, as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, that would be, who's the phil- Philistine that he killed? Somebody yell it out. Goliath. You got it, Goliath. He And that's probably the best-known story of David. David and Goliath. And when he comes back, Abner, who's the general of the Israelite army, took him and brought him before Saul, who is the king, And David, while David was still holding the Philistine's head. Remember that story. He he knocks him out with the sling, but then he goes and grabs the Philistine's own sword, and the head and the body are separated, and he picks up the head and walks back. Now, you know, if you have had boys growing up, you know they come home with all kinds of different things, but I doubt any one of them came home with a human head dripping in blood. And so he walks, Abner gets a hold of him, he walks in the tent, still holding the head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. Well, David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. And that's usually where we end the story of David and Goliath, but the author didn't end it there. The author goes into, their chapter divisions were added in, the year 1000 and I think 10 AD. This was written, oh, at least two, maybe 2,500 years before that. After David had finished talking with Saul, still holding the head, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, an heir to the throne because... Saul, he is the oldest son of Saul, became one in spirit with David. He sees David, saw what he did, meets David, and there's just that instant connection. And he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his home. And Jonathan made a covenant. A covenant is like a marriage covenant. It's promises that Jonathan makes to David. Jonathan is the greater, at least at this point. David is the lesser. He's an unknown kid who killed, unknown teen who killed Goliath. Jonathan is the heir apparent known through the whole country, and he makes a covenant with him because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David. So he gives, like, like only the royal family wore robes of this quality. And he takes it off, and he puts it on David. Like, he, he everybody would know what that meant. Because nobody wore the robes of royalty except royalty or those who are favored by royalty. Jonathan takes off the robe and he along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And we may not realize this, but having a sword and a bow in that day only the wealthy could afford those things. These are incredible gifts of favor from Jonathan. And interestingly, in this covenant, Jonathan does all the giving, David does all the receiving. There is a story in that, but I don't have time to follow it right now. And whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and, and Saul's officers as well. So, so David is getting all this favor. He's getting it from Jonathan, who is the heir apparent. He's getting it from the troops, and he's getting it from the officers. And everybody is supportive of David, loves David, wants to follow David. Everybody that is except for one. 17, or rather... Um Six, when the men returned home after David had killed the Philistine, I wonder if he was still holding the head. The woman came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And so this would have been normal. They're celebrating the victory that the king and his army has. But here's the problem. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands thousands. And David, his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Stop. That little phrase, What More Can He Get But The Kingdom, tips us off to what Saul knows. Two things we should be aware of when we're reading this story. Number one, the prophet Samuel speaking for God, came to Saul after Saul's continual disobedience and said, God has taken the kingdom from you. He has ripped it out of your hands, and he's going to give it to somebody more noble, better than you. You will no longer be the king, and your family, Jonathan included, will not receive the kingship. It is done. It's over God has said he has weighed you and he has found you wanting and he has removed you from having the kingdom. And there's another thing we should know. The same prophet, Samuel, then goes to this little town in Bethlehem where he meets Jesse and his sons and crowns the youngest son as the next anointed king. You know who that son was? Yes, you do, it's David. Now, why do you think Saul would say, What more can he get from me than the kingdom? Hmm. Maybe this report I heard is true. But what does that reveal about Saul and David? Saul was told by God, You're done. And what's he doing? Is there repentance? Is there sorrow for his sin? No, there's hanging on. I'm going to hang on. God said, I'm done. I don't care. I'm going to hang on to this thing. I'm the king. And David was told as a young man, you are the next king. What's the natural reaction that would come from David? I'm going to go out and take it. I just killed the Philistines, I'm getting favor. And yet David is not grasping for the kingship, he is waiting until God gives it to him. Interesting. Saul the proud, David the humble. What do we know from 1 Peter, the quote of the, from the Old Testament? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And now I want you to see how that's going to work itself out in this next story, in the normal things of life, how God is deeply active working out his will in the lives of these two people. So from that time on, Saul keeps a close eye on David. You know... That, that's that. The next day, an evil spirit. Now, this is the oddest verse, but it's the key to the story. The next day, an evil spirit from God. Okay, so that might hurt some of your theology. Not an evil spirit comes without God's permission. Having God's permission, an evil spirit comes forcefully. On Saul, meaning, with great influence on Saul. And Saul uh, this is the part that <laughs> uh, the evil spirit comes, and Paul and Saul prophesy. Do you think this evil spirits don't know truth? Read your Bible again. James chapter two. Satan and the demons know who God is and they tremble because they know what the word of God and truth is and interestingly that evil spirit causes Saul to prophesy now we're not told what he prophesies it's just all that we're told is is what comes next While David, he was prophesying in his house, while David was playing the lyre or the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he comes to David and he hurls it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. God's opposition, God's grace. God's opposition to Saul, God's grace to David. Well, hold on a second. how can it be God's grace to stave it when he's got a guy throwing spears at him? In order to understand this story, here, it's, it's the, heaven is being just slightly open to tell us that God sends an evil spirit upon Saul to work out how he wants The life of David and Saul to work out and God is deeply involved and he sends an evil spirit. But that's all we're told. But if you go to a very similar story in 1 Kings chapter 19, we get the the veil opened even a little bit more. And and by this time the kingdom David is long gone. The kingdom which was one is separated after Solomon and so you have the division of Israel into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah because that was a predominant and tribe. The northern kingdom is just called Israel, and that can get confusing sometimes if you don't know where you're at in the Bible. But the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, is visits Ahab, and Ahab convinces him, we need to go to war against the Arameans and take back the city that they took from me. Would you help me? Sure, says Jehoshaphat, but let's first inquire of the Lord. So he says, sure, and he gets a whole bunch of prophets that are prophesying, hey, you're going to win, you're going to win, you're going to win, let's go, 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 rah, rah, big rah, rah time. And then Jehoshaphat, whose heart followed God, said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? And he said, yeah, there's one, his name's Micaiah. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Stop. When a prophet of the Lord or a pastor or the word of God points out something in your life you don't like, who do you blame? Hmm. That tells you you have something about your heart. Ahab, you know, I don't like this guy because he's always saying bad things about me, so I'm just getting rid of him. Instead of, he's a prophet of the Lord, I need to humble myself before God. No, no, I, 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 I gotta get rid of this guy. I, I don't really like what he has to say, so I, I turn to other prophets because I don't like what he says. He doesn't say it's not true. He says, I don't like it. And that is a proud heart. Then when God reveals truth to us, through a prophet or a pastor, the word of God, a wife, a husband, a friend, a person in the life group, what's your response? The heart of a proud person says, I don't like it, I'm going to look elsewhere. The heart of a humble person says, I need to lean into this. So what's your heart like? So Micaiah continues. Now this is where he opens the veil. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw, so he's a prophet of God. He has a vision and he says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And if you go through the book of Isaiah or Ezekiel and into Revelation, you will see more detail to what Micaiah saw. But that's a great summary of what we see in other books of the Bible of God sitting on his throne and there are thrones around him and there's a multitude before him and Micaiah is transferred into this, transported into this through this vision and he sees what is happening at this point in time. And then the Lord says to all of those that are around him, he said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? So God makes a judgment on Ahab and says his life is over It is done. Now, who will go and... Interesting. God decrees the end, but he gives the means to whoever he is going to choose. God has decreed the end. All nations, all peoples of this world will bow and worship. Now, who will go for me? That's the voice of the Lord for us today. He has decreed the ends of where this earth will wind up. And then he says, now, who will go for me? He gives us the choice whether to be a part of what he is going to do or not. Interesting. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's asking you, I've decreed the ends, will you go? So in heaven... God decrees the ends, and he says, who will go, and one suggested this and another. This is very interesting, the, con- the conversation, the discussion, the back and forth going on in heaven. The picture that God sits on his throne and decrees everything and does everything is wrong. That is not how scripture works in heaven. It's not how scripture works here. God decrees his will, and then he looks for people whose heart would follow him and allows them the freedom to choose, to act. And the proud he resists and the humble he supports. And so this is the case right here. One suggested this, another suggested that. And finally, a spirit, remember we're not on earth, we're in heaven. A spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will go and entice him. By what means, asked the Lord. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And he said, and you will succeed in enticing him. And the Lord said, go and do it. Whose plan was it? God decreed the end. Whose plan was it to get Ahab to the end? The spirit. And God gives authority to that spirit and says, go. And so now we see what's going on on earth. That's what's happening in heaven. And what happens on on earth is Ahab listens to the hundreds of these prophets. They're lying, tell him he's going to have victory. He listens to them, he goes, and he is killed. Now the point here I wanna make is not Ahab's story, the point I wanna make is back in David and Saul's story because the same thing is going on. The spirit from heaven comes and it leads Saul down a path that he has already chosen to follow because he's too proud to listen the voice of God and the word of God and then Peter picks it up and he says that same thing to us when we are too proud to listen and obey the word of God then God will oppose us but you see we can't see it we don't see what God is doing in the heavens the veil doesn't get opened that often in fact I have never been I've never seen beyond that veil except for what it tells me in here and it tells me that behind the veil God is actively at work in my life, Ed. And when you are proud, God will oppose you. And when you are humble, he will give you the grace to follow it through. And that is happening whether you see it or not. God is active in your life whether you see it or not. And at times when you wonder where God is, just look right here because that's where he is, right beside We just don't see it. The scripture teaches that both the heavens and the earth are meant to work in a unity, like a husband and wife are meant to work in unity. So heavens and earth, that's why Jesus prays. He prays, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, because what happens in heaven works its way out on earth. But God calls us to be people of faith. He doesn't give us these visions very often. Some get them, but most don't. Rather, we need to walk by faith. But he's working. You may not know it. You may not see it. But if God can be trusted, and his word trusted, he is working. Okay, back to the story of Saul. So he tries to pin David to the wall. And David eludes him, Saul is a trained warrior. They're in a room. What are the chances of him missing twice? Grace. He couldn't hit the target if he wanted to because God's at work protecting David. Now, I'm just gonna give it a little thought here. David's got the grace of God and he's got a guy trying to pin him to the wall with a spear. Just because the grace of God is working in your life doesn't mean everything's going perfectly. You might have a few spears coming your ways. And that is the grace of God. He will be in that. You watch how he's in it. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Remember what I told you? Saul said, God said to Saul, you're done. He goes, no, I'm hanging on. But he said to David, you're going to be the one. He goes, I'll wait for you to get me there. And so he sent David away. This is Saul. I'm gonna send him away and I'm gonna give him a command over a thousand men. And David can lead the troops in their campaigns because eventually the odds are he's going to get killed. That's Saul's plan. I'm going to send him away and I'm going to put him right in the front where all the battles are. Where do you think David got that idea with Uriah? He lived it with Saul. You're right at the front and you're the commander and you're the target and I'm going to put you there and you're going to get killed. But what Saul doesn't count on is the reality of David, or God working in David's life. And everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. The Lord was protecting him. And in the most dangerous of situations and all the turmoil and the conflict and the difficulties and the attacks, God is protecting him and David comes through. And not only does David come through... But the very things that Saul meant to do to tear David down become the very things God uses to build him up. Only God can do that. Do you know he does it in your life too? You just gotta trust him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Made me stop and think. Do you struggle with fear? Now fear can come from a variety of different things. But one way it can come into our lives is we're resisting God and his will in our lives, and then we keep seeing things turning upside down. Things don't work out with our finances. Things don't work out with our relationships. Things don't work out in our families. Things don't work out in our health. Things don't work out in our business. And we know something is going on, and the fear is because of our unwillingness to submit. That's not the only reason we fear but that's one. And maybe that's a word of God for you today, because you know what you should be doing, but you're resisting God, and as a result, in your life, things are kind of coming undone, and now you have fear, because you never know what's gonna happen. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led the, <laughs> their campaigns, no matter how hard Saul tries. David just keeps getting blessed. So he comes up with a new plan. So Saul said to David, here's my oldest daughter, Mirab. I'll give her to you in the marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Now, this is just the first plan, but a new revision of it. Okay, I I gave you, you know, Ownership or leadership of thousands and instead of killing you it actually made you more famous now I'm going to make you part of my family and so you'll wear the robes of the family and you will be a Target if you weren't a target before being the leader now being part of the royal family you will be a target It's just the same plan only with a little addition to it now. I, I don't things don't quite fall into place, and I I think we have to assume some things in order to understand why, and he says, I'll give her to you in marriage, only serve me, and for Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him, let the Philistines do that. See, that's why he was marrying uh, his daughter to, no, so (laughs) I wonder how the relationship between Mirab and Saul was, that she's being used for his stupid petty plans in order to get to David. And then David said to Saul, who am I and my family? And he says, I don't belong. And then last minute, Saul pulls back and marries Meriboth to another man. Maybe he got a little afraid. What am I doing bringing this guy into my family? Maybe Merib put up a fuss. Maybe he just wanted to humiliate David, tell everybody he's going to be married and then be rejected. Maybe that'll work. Maybe, maybe some people won't, will then see through David. We're not told the reason. We're just told that Saul changes his mind. But then, verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. 3.0, plan 3.0. I'll give her to him, he thought, and here's why he wants to give give her to him, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. It's more the same. Saul uses his power and his influence to subtly set David up. Oh yeah, last time we tried to set him up with Mirab, he refused because he said I wasn't good enough, and so Saul sends the, uh, his attendance To David and says now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law and Saul ordered his attendants speak to David privately and say look the king likes you and his attendants all love you now become his son-in-law well we know that he wants him to marry Michal in order to that the Philistines would be a snare to him meaning that now he's going to be a target and he's going to get killed he's not really he doesn't want David in his family he wants to get rid of of David but he's suddenly playing a game and he knows oh the last time I did this David said, it's a big thing to become part of the king's family, meaning I don't have the money for that. I don't can't afford the bride price. And so then uh, they they repeated these words to David, and he said, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son in law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Well, there's an understatement. And when Saul's servant told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemy. Now, I'll try not to get too graphic here, <laughs> but I don't think if David walked up to a Philistine and said, "I would like your foreskin," that he's going to give it to him. You're going to have to kill the Philistine, and he's going to have to kill a hundred of them in order to get the bride price. You see the trap? I to just keep him in battle. I'm just going to keep him battle. I'm going to keep putting him where he's going to get killed. I'm going to keep putting him where he's dangerous. And I want you to notice this. Remember, we're, te- we're learning that Saul's opposing Saul because he's proud, and he's giving grace to David because he's humble. But David, that doesn't mean David's life is good, and he's got the big house and the nice car and the great job and the great family and everything's rocking. That's not what it's like for David. He's out in the middle of where it's most dangerous, being hounded by f- philistines physically and then the plots of saul and his attendants his commanders those that are are working against them underneath him he is in a distressing situation the favor of god is worked out in your life but it is not always here's all the blessings go take them and enjoy because your life is not about you my life is not about me it's about god and what he wants to do in this world And so if you think your life is for you, you're sadly mistaken. Your life belongs to somebody. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you surrendered your life to him, you said, here is my life. You gave it to him. And now he has the right to do with it what he chooses. That's a hard truth. And sometimes what God chooses is really difficult to absorb and to live. It doesn't change the fact that our lives belong to Him and He uses them and He does put us at times in places where it's dangerous and we're distressed and we don't know if we can keep going on. But it's in those times that He is near and He is working. And if you're humble before God, He will favor you and walk you through this to bring about His plan in your life and you're good. Now, don't confuse that with, oh, He'll answer every prayer. I can guarantee you, he won't answer every prayer. And a lot of the prayers we pray in those kinds of situations are the wrong prayers, and that's why they don't get answered. But you can trust his faithfulness. <laughs> Say to David, 100 Philistine foreskins. And when the tenants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. I can afford it. <laughs> Who knew? So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men, and with him they went out and killed two hundred Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Okay, so they—who ca- who's this job? Was it to count? Like, do you ever ask yourself these things? Like, come on, they count. <laughs> okay, who's the guy I hate worst in the court? You go count. Yeah, they counted out the full number to the king, so that David might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave the do- his daughter Michal in marriage. And now watch this. God is mocking Saul. You got your plans to kill David? Your plans mean nothing. You want to put him in the front? I'm going to bless him. You want to give him your daughter, make him a target? I'm going to protect him. You want to give him this mission, 100 Philistine foreskins? I'm going to give him 200. And Saul knows what's going on because look at the next verse. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, this is the second time we are told Saul realized, man, everything I do to diminish David, God uses to exalt him. Everything I do to attack him, God uses to make him greater. Saul became still more afraid, and he remained the enemy the rest of his days. Now, This is, there's, whenever we read a story in scripture in the Old Testament, we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to remember, there's three reasons that story's told. One, it's a historical, accurate account of two people named Saul and David. And we learn how God works. that They're illustrative of how God works in the lives of people so that we can apply those things to our lives. But why David? Why is so much of the Bible about David? Why is there so many stories about David? Because David is a foreshadowing of the greatest anointed one to come, the Messiah. And to prepare people for what the Messiah would look like, God chose David and to bless him and to use the stories of his life, record them down, so that people would know what the Messiah is going to be like. And listen, Saul is saying to David, I, I'm going to kill him because a dead man can't be king, right? That's why he's going to kill him. Dead man can't be king. Now, fast forward to Jesus, because he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the greatest. Do you ever face anything like this? Remember the religious leaders? Remember those who opposed him, tried to trap him, tried to discredit him? And every time they try to discredit him, what happens? Jesus comes out looking even better. Remember, they talk about him behind his back, And then the miracles and his compassion overcome that. Remember, they uh, pose hard questions at him, and Jesus just answers them. And people are amazed at his teaching as one who has authority. And the more they try to discredit Jesus and attack him, the more God props Jesus up. Right? Until they come up with their final plan. Dead man can't be king we will kill him, we will kill him. In fact, we know that to be true because of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Nope, Luke chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate to be crucified. And they began to accuse him to Pilate who is the ruling authority of the Romans. We have found this man subverting our nation. Now watch what they say about him. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. And we don't want him for our king. And so here's our plan. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime is this command this man Committed, but they keep yelling at him, crucify him, crucify him. Dead man can't be king. And so Jesus miraculously escapes from the religious leaders. No, Jesus is killed. Dead man can't be king. And this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah and the king, we don't want him, so kill him. And so they do. But what do we know about the truth of Scripture? God opposes the proud, just like he opposed Saul, the proud, unwilling to submit to the will and mind and commands of God, so the religious leaders, unwilling to submit to the will and mind and commands of God that God opposes him and God gives grace to the humble just as he gave grace to David and protected him even in danger so now he pours out grace to Jesus Well, how is that grace because a resurrected man can be king that in the plan of God, the evil that these men did, they aligned themselves without even knowing it to the will and mind of God, resisting God, hating God, opposing God, hating Jesus and killing him, and they fulfilled the very end decree of God that the Messiah will come and be sacrificed for the sins of the people to restore people and bring hope and bring forgiveness of sins, and then I'm going to raise him from the dead, and the ultimate act of grace. He raises Jesus from the dead, and he becomes not just king of Israel, king of the whole world. That's the story of Scripture. That's what you believe if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what you and I are to live out if we follow Jesus. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble in ways we don't even understand. That in the worst hour of Jesus hanging on a cross, the greatest hour was about to happen on the third day. God would raise him from the dead. And you know what? A resurrected man can be king and is king. In fact, he watches over you day by day by day to pour out the grace that you need to continue to follow him. And so that's the third thing, the reason these stories are told. One is to tell us the history of David and what God was doing in their lives for instruction for us. The second is to tell us about the king, but the third is to tell us how to live our lives while we're waiting for the king to return. You either believe this stuff or you don't. I'm not saying it's easy to believe but to either believe it or you don't. Either God is actually at work in your life today, working out his grace as you submit to him. How do I submit to him? As you obey his word, what he tells you to do, he brings grace into your life and then moves you along in the path that he has for you. Or he opposes you to really his heart, the heart of God is to oppose those that, that resist him, that they might come to repentance, but if they don't, that they will come to judgment. And he's actively doing it today in your life. Today. thought of some instances that, that's happened. You know, if you knew you should have avoided sexual immorality and you didn't, and now you have shame and guilt and you can hardly live with yourself and the person you gave yourself to is gone, do you think maybe that might have been God opposing you? You know you should tithe your money. But you don't. You resist God's command. And so it seems to you that you, get, you make money and put it in your pockets, but your pockets have holes in it. And you get things, but they don't really satisfy. And you feel like your life is just one big gathering and taking care of things. And it's kind of not fulfilling at all. You think maybe that's God opposing you? You know you should forgive, but you won't. You know, by the way... I can't is not an answer because Jesus says you need to forgive so he thinks we can. He doesn't think it's going to be easy. He just says you can if you lean on me. But if you say I won't, don't you find your, your spirit is constantly tied in knots and anger and bitterness toward that person and what they did to you? Do you think maybe that's God opposing you? You know you should confront someone for the wrong that they did to you but you won't And so you live in fear and you avoid the person and you spend your time thinking, well, if I could just, if I could just do this or if I could just say that or if this situation happened, this is what I would do. And that's how you spend your time thinking about that person? Is it possible that that's God opposing you? Maybe even allowing a spirit to influence you. Ephesians and You know you should share Jesus with a family member or a friend, but you don't. And you can't shake the sense of, I just feel so far away from God, or I just can't feel like I please God. You think maybe that that's God saying to you, opposing you in your disobedience? Now conversely, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, you engage in sexual immorality, but then you repented and confessed to who you needed to, and now you feel pure, loved, and close to God. That's grace. You decide to tithe, and you're finding, remember that, I don't know if you remember the encounter a couple weeks ago from um, Hendy. I gave more than I thought I could, and then I had more than I thought I ever would have. I had more at the end of the month. I actually was able to bless other people. That, that's not an accident. That's grace. You seek God to help you forgive, and you're walking that process of forgiveness. Process, though we claim it at a point in time, is usually a process. The deeper the hurt, the longer and the harder the process. But as you walk through that process, you notice now that days and even weeks are going by, you don't even think of the person and what they did to hurt you. It's grace. You actually confront the person that hurt you, and while it may not have worked out the way you want it to, you actually feel free from the hurt that they did. That's grace that goes with obedience. You pray for and you attempt to share Jesus with a friend or a family member, and I mean, it doesn't always go great, doesn't always go well, they're not always interested. Because you obeyed, you have this sense of closeness with God and joy, and and the word of God seems to be coming alive again to you? That's grace. I have one point. just took a long time to say it. When God says, I oppose the proud and give grace to the humble, he means it, and he's engaged in it every day in your life, and he does it so that you will become a godly man or woman, a godly team. A godly child and so as you obey the Word of God he will pour grace out into you doesn't mean everything will always go the way you want it to go but it means God is in your corner working with you and for you, helping you get to the place you need to be. You can trust his word, and the way you trust his word is by obeying his word, by humbling yourself to obey. So what has the Holy Spirit put on your heart that you're resisting him now in your marriage or in your business or in your ethics or in your finances or in your relationships, in your sex life? What is it that God is prompting you to either say stop and change or keep going? I'm with you in it. Let's pray. Today, Father, the truth of your word is incredible. And uh, David was a man after your own heart because he humbled himself before you and you favored him. And Jesus humbled himself before you. And despite the pain of his life and the cross. You favored him with the most glorious event of history, the resurrection from the dead. And now he sits as king over this world, soon to come back. And so in our lives, when we hear the word of God and we choose to humble ourselves and obey it, you say, I will be there with you. And now I pray for the supernatural work of your spirit to strengthen and encourage those that are trying to obey and struggling and that you would convict those that are refusing to listen. Thank you for being kind of tearing back the veil and showing us how you work in our lives. Amen.